You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open the word of our God together. We turn to the gospel according to John chapter 20. The scripture reading is John 20, the verses 10 to 31. The text is found in that scripture reading, namely the verses 19 to 23. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking it was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God, Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, once again we are into that time of year when many of you seem to have hockey 
on your mind. It's playoff time and the Canucks are in the thick of it. Will they succeed? Will they go far? Will they win? Now that depends, I suspect, does it not? It depends on a number of different things. It depends on talent. It depends on refereeing. It depends on staying injury-free. And especially it depends on team play. Winning has a lot to do with your ability to play as a team, as a unit, as a focused and very united group. And of course, something like that doesn't develop overnight. It requires a lot of effort, discipline, and practice. Or if you like, a lot of determined team building. Oh, and this, beloved, applies not just, of course, in the realm of sports. It also, for example, applies in many other areas of life. For example, if you have a a sizable business that you are running, then you surely know that team building is critical. You just cannot have it that employees go out on alone and ignore what others are doing or are supposed to be doing. No, there has to be a matter of shared aims and goals and objectives. There has to be a spirit of cooperation. There has to be an awareness of what others are doing and what your role and responsibility is all about. Proper team building, you see, is essential for success. And that applies to sports. It applies to business. Does it apply anywhere else? What about in the church? Does team building apply in the church as well? Now I think that here we need to exercise some care and some caution. The church is not a hockey team and the church is not a business enterprise. And yet, there are some common aspects that cannot be ignored. But beloved, consider what it is that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has been doing with his disciples, especially with that innermost group of those twelve disciples. Has he not just spent almost three years teaching and training them? Has he not sent them out on special missions and even held special retreats only with them? Has he not gone out of his way to share with them, to encourage them, to help them, to motivate them, to prepare them? In other words, has our Savior not very actively been busy team building? Team building with a view to the future and the creation of his Catholic and universal church. And surely the answer to all of those questions is yes. Christ has been busy for years already building, shaping, molding, disciplining. He's been building a spiritual team of apostles. So how has he fared? How's he doing? Well, I think at this juncture in his ministry, we can only say horrible, awful. 
When really things became difficult around Good Friday, they, they all, those disciples, they left him in the lurch. Every single one of them ran for the hills. Not one stayed and stood beside him. One of them even betrayed him three times publicly. They all developed a case of instant amnesia and forgot what he had said and what he had done during those three years. And in the end, all those beautiful words and all of those miraculous deeds that would appear went up in smoke and made no difference. So much for the apostolic team. Well, what now? Will the Lord get rid of all of them? Will he put all of them on waivers or trade away every single one of them? Is he fed up with a lot of them? I think that's what we would do, wouldn't we? We would start over. We'd begin again from scratch. We'd assemble a whole new team. But you'll notice, beloved, that is not what our Savior does. And how do we know it? Well, we know it especially from our text of this afternoon. And so I preached to you on the following theme, the Lord, the risen Christ, rebuilds His team. And we see in our text that He reinstates them, He commissions them, He equips them. Now, beloved, notice that our text opens with the words on the evening of that first day of the week, meaning that we are still dealing with Easter here. We are dealing with the evening of that great and momentous day in the history of salvation. And what a day it has been. Early in the morning, as John tells us, Mary Magdalene had gone to the tomb where the body of the Lord Jesus had been laid to rest a few days before. And she'd gone there to put the finishing touches on his body and to make sure that he was properly buried. But then as she approached the tomb, she received a series of shocks. First, she's shocked to see that the stone has been rolled away from the entrance to the tomb. And second, she must have peeked inside and seen that the body of her master was missing. It was gone. And in a panic, she ran away. But as she ran, she came across Peter and John and told them her, her terrible discovery. And as a result, they both ran to the tomb. And on reaching the tomb, they looked in and they saw the, the burial cloths lying there by themselves, but no body. And what conclusions did they come to? Well, actually, we don't know for sure. Peter's immediate reaction is not recorded here in John's account. John's reaction, however, is recorded. It says in verse 8, he saw and believed. Well, what actually did he believe? For next we're told in verse 9, they still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So what actually did John believe? Maybe all he believed was that something miraculous or unusual had happened to Jesus. But it would appear from verse 9 that he didn't know precisely what had happened. 
You see, beloved, there's a lot of confusion here. And there's even more confusion to come. For later Mary tells them about the two angels and about the gardener who she claims was actually Jesus himself. And what must the disciples have been thinking? What kind of thoughts were going around in their minds? What what conflicting ideas and feelings? And probably more than just a little touch of guilt as well. Maybe even some finger pointing. For they must all have been deeply aware that they had every single one of them failed the test of loyalty and true discipleship. For true disciples do not desert their master and leave him in the lurch. So, beloved, there's confusion and there's guilt all around. But there's also something else. John says there's fear. Fear of the Jews. They know only too well that once the authorities do away with a dangerous leader, that usually the group that he had around him is next. And so at any moment they expect a dreadful knock on the door and a command to open up. They're sitting on pins and needles for the troops to surround the building, break down the door, and haul them away. They're so filled with fear you can cut it with a knife. But then, beloved, just as they are expecting the worst, something else happens. Something truly unnerving. For suddenly, Jesus stands in front of them. Is he standing right there? The door is locked. It's still locked. They heard nobody knock. Nobody came in. And he's standing there. And there's no mistake. And then he speaks. What does he say? Does he say, what a bunch of cowards you are? What a bunch of spineless Disciples, you're all fired. Well, beloved, he doesn't say that, does he? Instead, he says something totally unexpected. He says to them, peace be with you. He wishes, he actually wishes them peace. Now, what does that mean? In some ways, it represents your normal greeting, only these are far from normal circumstances. In other ways, it represents a reminder of what he had said earlier in John 14, verse 27, about my peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. But you know, more than anything else, His presence among them and these words that he utters tell them, tell the disciples that he hasn't come to upbraid them and to dismiss the lot of them. 
He hasn't come to exact revenge. Now the word peace tells them that he doesn't hold a grudge against them. And furthermore, the fact that he dispenses peace to them can only be a source of huge encouragement. Here they had feared the worst, but it hadn't happened. And as a matter of fact, the opposite had happened to them. Yes, and then, beloved, to prove that they are not engaged in wishful thinking here, look at what he does next. He he shows them, it says, his hands and his side. They can see with their own eyes the damage that the nails have done to his hands and the damage that the spear has done to his side. And then they know that he is for real and risen. And the result, they're overjoyed. John says the entire atmosphere in that room, which a moment before had been so filled with confusion and fear, the entire atmosphere changes. And they suddenly realize what it is to have their Savior back. Yes, and they knew then, And we should realize as well that here truly is a Savior who knows all about their weaknesses and our weaknesses. Well, let's face it, beloved, we were not there. We were not there when he was arrested. And we didn't run away. But if we had been there, we would have done exactly the same thing we too would have taken the first stagecoach out of town. We too would have denied him. We too would have shown ourselves to be just as undeserved. And all of that, beloved, reminds us that one of the wonders of the gospel always resides in the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ is so full of patience and understanding. And forgiveness. It defies imagination and expectation. It defies everything that we deserve to have a Savior like this. And that's a wonder. But it's not the only wonder in this text. Or notice that in spite of all of our weaknesses, there's another one, and that's the fact that the Savior still wants to use them. He doesn't disband his apostolic team. He doesn't put them all on waivers or trade them all away. No, what he does is he calls them together and he gives them orders. Look at verse 21. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Notice how he repeats himself. He he repeats the words, peace be with you. And why does he do that? 
I don't think the answer is too difficult, beloved. Isn't it the fact he does it because we people tend to have such thick skulls? There are those times when we don't hear so well, understand so well, so something has to be, something important has to be repeated. And that's really what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing, and he's drilling in his peace. And he's saying to them, there is no hidden agenda on my part. I am not here looking for revenge. No, you need to understand, you need to come to grips with the fact that I have forgiven you. I know your weaknesses. I understand them. And in spite of them, there is still fellowship and unity and harmony. Everything that peace describes between us. But beloved, that's not all. For not only does Jesus reiterate his words of peace, he does more. Of course, he he could have said to them, peace be with you. I don't hold any grudges against you, but you realize that after everything that has happened that I can no longer make use of you. So he could have still retired them quietly and graciously. But he does nothing of the sort. He repeats his words of peace and, and then he proceeds to put them to work as never before. He says to them, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Quite simply, you can say what he is doing is commissioning them. He's giving them work to do. He's giving them a task to perform. He's giving them a mission to fulfill. And what a mission. Notice the connections here. First, God the Father sends His Son into the world. And that means our God is ascending God. And how thankful we should be for that. Imagine, just imagine where we would be if it were not so. We would still be in darkness and death. We would be without life and without hope in the world. Beloved, when God decided to send His Son, everything changed for us. But that's not all. For not only does the Father send the Son, But the Son sends as well. The Son sends His followers out into the world. He begins with the eleven, and in them He ends up sending His whole church. You and I, beloved, on the basis of this passage and other passages, need to understand that the church of Jesus Christ is a sent church. It's very much a church on a mission. A church with a task. A church with a calling. And we need to remember that, beloved. 
Perhaps in these days we need to remember it more than ever before because in these days of ease and freedom and affluence we so easily lose our way and forget about our mission. You know, it's such a temptation these days to settle down, to relax, to enjoy, to smell the roses, to put up your feet and to watch the crooked world go by. And indeed, it all begs the question, do we still reckon with the fact that we are by very nature and definition a sent people? Do we still take this command of Christ serious? Do we still embrace the office of prophet, priest, and king? We may no longer sing onward Christian soldiers. But do we still see ourselves as enlisted people who are really on a mission to conquer the world? Of course, that's quite a task. To conquer the world, some would say it's a humanly speaking impossible task, and it is. It's utterly impossible when it is attempted in our own strength and ability. To take on this calling, we need help, lots of help, spiritual help, supernatural help. And again, our God knows that. And our Savior knows it too. And that's, beloved, why the next thing happens. Verse 22 says, And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now what is this? What does this mean? The breathing part, beloved, is to remind us of the words in John 3 and the wind that blows wherever It wills or pleases. And as for the words about the Holy Spirit, there are reference back to John 3, but not only John 3, also John 14 and 16. And there are a reminder that unless one is born of water and the Spirit, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. They're all a reminder that Jesus is sending the Spirit as the mighty counselor of his people. And again, you ask, what does that mean? Why do we need the Spirit? I love it for two reasons. First of all, we need the Spirit to purify us or to regenerate us, to, to make us into a new creation, a new humanity, a new people. And secondly, we need the Spirit to empower and to sharpen us. It's the Spirit who helps us to remember. It's the Spirit who moves our tongues, who who strengthens our hearts, who stiffens our spines, who renews our minds, who gives us courage. Isn't that, beloved, what you see in the book of Acts? 
Isn't that what you see when the Spirit comes and the Spirit transforms all of those weak and fickle and feeble disciples and He turns them into an army? And they do go out to conquer the world. And you see it still today. The gospel keeps on marching. One nation after another, one continent after another. It doesn't stop. And it will not stop until the great day of days. You see, beloved, how great and glorious is the transforming, mobilizing power of the Spirit in the hearts and lives of the children of God. Yes, and one more thing is great as well. And that is the message that the church may carry into the world. What is the message? If you were asked to summarize one particular message that's at the heart of the church's calling, what would you formulate? Jesus loves you, has a plan for your life. I'm here to give you real self-esteem, wealth and prosperity. We hear all kinds of things, don't we, today? But do you hear what you find in, in verse 23 of John's 20th chapter? If you forgive anyone his sin... They are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. Is anyone promoting that? Is the Christian church still giving that kind of message? And you know what kind of message this is, beloved? This is the message of reconciliation. This is what lies at the heart and the bottom of the gospel. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where the Apostle Paul dwells on the ministry of reconciliation. Why was Jesus sent? To take away the sins of his people. And why is the church sent out into the world to proclaim repentance? Repent of your sins, turn to Jesus Christ, believe in Him and be saved. That's the fundamental message of the church. And it speaks about sin and rebellion and forgiveness and reconciliation. And it also speaks about what happens if you refuse to repent and the consequences of that. So, beloved, do you see and do you hear what an awesome task and responsibility the church of Jesus Christ has? There is a sense in which the church receives words of life and words of death. Words of life for those who repent. 
words of death for those who refuse to repent. And that's a huge responsibility. And indeed, all of us who believe the gospel and all of us who claim Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord have this calling. We are all to look for and to pray for opportunities to exercise this calling and responsibility. Heralds of good tidings in a world of sin and death. And beloved, may God grant that still today we have a sense of mission. May the Lord grant that also this baby baptized this afternoon grows up to have a sense of mission. May we all realize what a privilege it is to belong to Jesus Christ. But you know, when you belong to Jesus Christ, that means you're in His army. You're on His team. You're in His church. You're part of His congregation. The privileges are enormous. But the responsibilities don't go away. And thankfully, the Spirit doesn't go away either. The Spirit who helps us and enables us to carry these responsibilities. May God bless us all. Let us pray. Almighty God and Father, we come to you and we thank you for reminding us, reminding us of who you are and who you have called us to be. We thank you, Lord, that you are the ever-faithful God, the God who seeks your children, who calls them, brings them together, forgives them, reconstitutes them. Father, we've seen that so very clearly that on the day of Easter so long ago, and we expect that you would have washed your hands of all of these disciples, that you instead deal with them in grace and mercy. And Lord, we stand amazed at who you are and what you do. And we thank you, Father, that still today you continue to deal with us weak people, And that you are the one who makes us strong. This is the power of your spirit and the ministry of your word. You give us strength. You empower us. So, Father, we rejoice. We rejoice in the fact that our Savior, Jesus Christ, lives and reigns today. And we rejoice in the fact that we may belong to him. And that belonging to Him is the greatest privilege in the world. And that along with those privileges, there come a few responsibilities as well. Father, may we in thankfulness and in a new obedience embrace those responsibilities 
and show ourselves to be always a people on a mission. Lord, be with us and hear us in Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.